Well, we'll be in John chapter 3 today. John chapter 3, we're hoping to finish up this chapter today. Not hoping, we will finish up this chapter today. John chapter 3. Um, as you're turning there, just sort of recap um, kind of where we've been. Because we're coming back to a, a character that was introduced to us in chapter 1. Uh, chapter 1, we met John the Baptist. And John the Baptist figured prominently in chapter 1. We talked about him for weeks, actually. Uh, because uh, John is the, the main witness um, of, of Jesus. John um, is the one who came to witness to the light. He wasn't himself the light, but he came to bear witness of the light. Uh, John is the one that said, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals, speaking of, of Jesus. And John the Baptist had uh, a powerful ministry. Um, he had many followers. He um, was baptizing out in the wilderness, and people were coming to him. And what he preached was a, a baptism of repentance. And he said that he was there to prepare the way of the Lord. And we looked at that in detail, that he indeed fulfilled much of Old Testament prophecy, that one would come in the spirit of Elijah, but not be Elijah. But he would come in the spirit of Elijah and the power of Elijah to um, make straight the way of the Lord. In chapter 3 today, we come back to John the Baptist. We're back to John the Baptist. Now, we haven't, um, we, we haven't seen him since. Uh, Jesus has really begun to start his ministry. He went to Cana and performed his first miracle. Then he went to Jerusalem and he cleansed the temple. And the Bible tells us that he did many signs there. In the last few weeks, we've been um, following Jesus' discussion with the, the Pharisee, Nicodemus. Um, and he was really teaching Nicodemus, even though Nicodemus was a teacher of Israel. He was teaching Nicodemus how to be saved. He was telling him what he needed was to be born again or born from above. And what we saw last week was that while, while we need a, a, a rebirth, a, a new birth, that is, that is one that comes from above, um, we also are required to, to believe in the one who can give that. And we looked at the two sides of that, that, that uh, the first 10 verses really talk about this, uh, this spiritual birth. We have no control over it, just like we have no control over our physical birth. We don't have any input into that. Just I, I, Maybe you did. I didn't. I was just here, right? And all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, I guess I'm here. Uh, we have no input over that. And Jesus uses the same analogy and says, just like that, you need to be born from above. But then he goes to the flip side of the coin. And he says, in order to do that, you need to believe. And so he preached that he needed to believe, uh, Nicodemus needed to believe in uh, Jesus. And we looked at the famous verse, the, probably the most well-known verse in all of Scripture, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world, right, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but has eternal life. And, and so last week we're coming off of this great, incredible, you know, gospel sermon uh, to Nicodemus, and then we're back to John the Baptist. And so it seems kind of like, a, wow, this is an interesting change. Why are we coming back here? And we're going to see that uh, see why today. Because what Jesus has come to do is to inaugurate uh, a new way. See, Nicodemus and the Pharisees were preaching um, uh, the old way, weren't they? Uh, the way to God is to just adhere to all these um, customs and these purifying rituals, and God will look upon you and say, you're a pretty worthy servant because you're able to keep all these things. Uh, welcome into the kingdom of God. And Jesus just shoots all that down and says, actually... You need to be born from above. You can, you can trash all of that, ditch it, and you need to start with this. You need new birth. That's what you need. And so we come back to 
John the Baptist. Because John the Baptist represents, in a way, the old things. He is the last of the Old Testament prophets. He is preaching a new thing, the baptism of repentance. But in a way, he sort of represents the old. And today we see how the old is going to go, but the new is going uh, to come. But not just that, but how does that affect the servants of God? So let's look at that. We're going to look at John chapter 3, beginning in verses 22 through 36. Let me read through it. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing in Ainon near Salim, because there was much water there, and they came and were baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. Then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. And what he has seen and heard that he testifies and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God does not give the Spirit by measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Let me pray. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this passage that you've given us today. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us that my words would be your words, that you'd guide us into truth. Lord, we want to see you more clearly. We want to know you better. We want to glorify you. So would you just reveal truth today to us, God, for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's jump into it. Verse 22, John starts out with a very familiar phrase, especially if you've been with us on the Revelation studies. Hopefully this sticks out to you. What does John say after these Things. If you've been coming Wednesday night, John is the same author of the book of Revelation. John says over and over and over again in the book of Revelation, have a look through, you'll see, after these things, meta tauta. And what it means is that this is the next thing that has uh, come along chronologically. It doesn't denote how much time has passed, but it does denote uh, a chronological um, in, um, progression. And so that's what's happening here. Chronologically, I've been trying to make careful to include the things that maybe are included in the other Gospels that we have missed. So far, you haven't missed anything. Um, we've been going chronologically through the early ministry of uh, Jesus. And so this comes on the heels, according to the author here, John, uh, of Jesus' discussion with Nicodemus. And he says, after uh, these things, after these things, speaking of what just take, took place, Jesus' time in Jerusalem, um, in the in the, the temple and also with, with Nicodemus. So after those things, what happens? His disciples came into the land of uh, Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized. So Jerusalem is in the region of Judea. That's where it is. 
But it says that he, he left and went into the land of Judea. So what's taking place here? He's left the actual capital city. That's what he's done. He's left the capital city of Jerusalem. He's remained in the land of Judea. So he's gone into the um, outlying areas, the wilderness, if you will, of Judea. And he's remaining with his disciples. So he's, two things are being accomplished here. And this is what we're going to look at uh, today. Um, one is he's going to spend some time with his disciples. He has not had a whole lot of quiet time, downtime with his disciples. But here it says that he remained with them. And this Greek word remain, diatribo, means to, to spend time with or to pass away the time. And the reason it's important is because I believe that um, some significant time has passed. I, I probably several weeks, if not months, have passed that he's been out in the countryside here with his uh, disciples. That word is used ten times in the New Testament. Eight of those times is in the book of Acts. And every time you read it, you see that they were there many days or for a long period of time. And so I think considerable period of time has probably passed. And during this time, uh, Jesus' disciples were, were baptizing. And so there's a ministry that begins to grow here and a follow, following that begins to take place. And the question might be, what are they baptizing the people for here? What's happening here? Um, well, Jesus was preaching the same thing that John the Baptist was. If you were to read Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, I have it here for you. It says this, from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, that's pretty much what John the Baptist was preaching. Jesus is preaching the similar thing. What isn't taking place, and I, don't want you, I want you to make sure you understand this, is Christian baptism. That's not what's taking place. In fact, we mentioned that in uh, Jesus' discussion with Nicodemus in chapter 3. The reason being, Christian baptism didn't exist yet. Christian baptism came about after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, which baptism symbolizes, right? And one of the reasons we looked at that in, even in John chapter 3, as Jesus was talking about the new birth, he tried to describe it to Nicodemus further and said, you need to be baptized by water and the spirit. And many people say, oh, water, you have to be baptized to be saved. But it can't be Christian baptism because it didn't exist yet, and he can't expect Nicodemus to understand something that doesn't exist but he does call him to account, right? He says, but you're a teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? We can't be saved by baptism. But both Jesus and John have a baptism ministry because it's a baptism of repentance, a baptism of repentance. Repentance is an important theme, I think, going into this that you should understand because what repentance essentially is saying is that I'm done with the old way, and I'm going to adhere to the new way, right? It's a turning from this path and going to this path. The old is going away, and the new path is where I now go. I've repented. I've turned away from those things. And that's why John is preparing the people by the baptism of repentance for Jesus. It's also interesting in that, and you should note this, um, is that they're there and they're baptizing, but Jesus himself didn't participate in the baptizing if you were to skip down to chapter 4, verse 2, it just tells us, though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples. Jesus wasn't doing it, but his disciples were. And so they've been out there, and they've, they've had this ministry uh, going on. And in verse 23, it says this, Now John also was baptizing in Inon near Salim. Now, the, a couple of places have been proposed as to where this might be, because people don't know exactly where Inon is. Um, and both places suggested are in the region of Samaria. Jesus is in the region of Judea. So 
quite possibly they're in sort of neighboring regions um, uh, baptizing. It doesn't really make much of a difference, but the point is they're on the border of one another and that they're in close proximity to one another, and they have very similar ministries. And it says that he was doing that there because there was much water there, and they came and were baptized. So you have a baptism ministry happening by Jesus and his disciples. You have a baptism ministry happening by John and his disciples. And then verse 24, I love verse 24 because it says this, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. It seems like an obvious thing that uh, makes sense that John would be baptizing because he's not in prison, (laughs) right? Uh, he, he, He couldn't be baptizing if he were in prison. When you find verses like that, think higher of John, think higher of the writer. They're not putting something in there to state the obvious. Of course, John is not baptizing out in the wilderness, Um, because he's not in prison. What is the point of this? Well, I think it's important to note this. You have to remember that the other Gospels, the the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, not only had they been written at this period, but they had been circulated for many years. So you as a reader of the the Gospel of John would have already read Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And already reading Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you would already know this one thing. John was in prison. Why? If you read those Gospels, all three of them start their... um, description of Jesus' public ministry, and that is when John is already in prison. So you would be reading about Jesus' public ministry and find out that John is already in prison. But here in this gospel, we find out actually John was doing something besides being in prison all his life. Poor guy. Um, And and it helps us to kind of pinpoint where this was happening uh, because it places it between a couple of uh, events. Um, In each of those, in in the other gospels, they, 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 they put John the Baptist in prison, but also they account for the, the what is it, the, uh, the temptation of Jesus starts there, and it goes all the way to John's imprisonment. This gospel doesn't cover uh, the temptation of uh, Jesus. So basically, he's plopping something in the middle that gives us this some more explanation. This is where this is taking uh, place. He's helping to avoid any uh, confusion. It's also helpful to note that John's gospel is a supplemental gospel because it assumes something. It assumes you already know that John winds up in prison, right? John was not in prison. So it's helpful to understand, I I see what John has done here. He's already uh, gathered information. He's placing this chronologically where it should take place between the temptation um, and his imprisonment. This happens before, and it's supplemental information. But then we get to the meat of it. Verse 25, then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. Well, we discussed purification back in chapter 2. If you remember, Jesus did the miracle of turning water into wine. And he did that out of these six water pots. You remember the six water pots? Those were used and kept for the purification of the Jews. And purification of the Jews simply means sort of a ritual cleansing that they would go through. But Jesus took that old way of doing things, the jars for ritual cleansing. And if you remember, he turned those in, into the, 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 the contents within them, water, it, into the best wine they'd ever tasted. So from this old came something really new, something pretty amazing. And it was really a picture of, of, of things to come, that this old way of doing things was going to go, and Jesus was going to bring a, a new way of, of purification. So we don't know the specifics here, 
uh, of what they were disputing over. Uh, They could have been concerned about the distinction between maybe John's baptism and those ceremonial rites. Like, what is the distinction? Does that cleanse me? How does that cleanse me? I mean, I already cleansed myself. Maybe they were discussing those uh, things. Um, Like I said, John's baptism and Jesus carried that uh, prior requirement that you needed repentance. You needed something to change, something new. Whatever specifically it was, it, it brought out a deeper root problem, right? That it, it was a surface thing there, but it brought out something deeper. And it comes to us in verse 26. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. Interesting. Doesn't matter what issue was happening with John's disciples and the Jews about purification. They didn't go to John and say, okay, so they were, they were questioning us about this purification and your baptism. Can you clear things up? What, that, wasn't, that wasn't what came out of it. What came out of it was, did you know that the guy you pointed out, the one you testified of, that Jesus, which they don't even mention his name, by the way, right? He, he's actually baptizing as well, and people are following him. Can you believe it? People are following him. John's disciples were totally, completely fine with this whole new, new system and, and repentance under John's ministry. But the minute people started leaving their ministry, their, their followers began to wane and follow Jesus. Now they had a, now they had a problem. Now, now, now we have an issue. And I think this gets the root of this whole uh, passage here. The root issue with these things is always our, our hearts, it's always our hearts. These were dedicated followers of John. They heard his message. They understood it. But did they really care about the message? <laughs> were they really in it for that? What was it that John was really preaching? Those are the things that we're going to look at today. But I want to give you an example. If you can turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7 real briefly. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Because God throughout history chooses people for particular tasks, right? And that's, that's what the Bible shows us. Like, here's this individual, and this is what I called him to do, and this is what he accomplished, and this is how he did it, and on and on and on. You just meet person after person after person. I'm just going to pick one out, kind of an obscure person. You probably haven't heard of him, King David. Second Samuel chapter 7. <laughs> Second Samuel chapter 7 in verse 1. Verse 1. Now it came to pass when the king was dwelling in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around that the king said to Nathan the prophet, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. Then Nathan said to the king, go, do all that is in your heart for the Lord is with you. But it happened that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord. Would you build a house for me to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day, but have moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. Wherever I've moved about with all the children of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, Israel, saying, why did you, have you not built me a house of, of cedar? Now, therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold from following the sheep to be a ruler over my people, over Israel. And I've been with you wherever you've gone, and I've cut off all your enemies from before you, and I've made you a great name like the name of the great men who are on the earth. 
So David is done fighting. His kingdom is established. And he looks around. And he says, you know what I haven't done? I haven't actually built a temple. I haven't built something for God. You know, the Ark of the Covenant sitting out. I should build a house for him. He tells that to the prophet. The Lord tells the prophet, why does he need to build me a house? I didn't ask him to build me a house. Why does he need to build me a house? And so instead, he says, you know, tell him, listen, I, I don't need him to build me a house. I've never had a house. I had the tabernacle moving around. I moved from place to place, but I didn't have a house. And instead, he gives him this promise. And this is amazing. Look down at verse 13. He makes a promise to not David, but to his seed, to his offspring. And this is what the promise is. Verse 13, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. It's not you, David. You're not going to build the house. I'm going to have someone else build it. It's going to be your, your son. He'll build my house for me. And then verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. And according to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. God makes this amazing promise that I'm going to do something better. I'm going to have your son build a house, but I'm, what I'm going to do is I'm going to establish his kingdom forever. Your, king, your kingdom will never go away. It will be established forever. And look at David's response. This is what I want you to see. Verse 18. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Lord God? <laughs> Who am I? I am, I am nobody. I'm nobody. You know what? God uses a whole bunch of nobodies. That's what the Bible's about. He says, I took you from the sheepfold. You were watching sheep, <laughs> and I made you a king. I've done a lot of great things for you. And we can get to a place in, 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 in power, in life, in ministry, in those things, and think it's about us, right? It can begin to go like, wait, look at this. People are following me. That's what John, John's disciples started thinking. Oh, these, this, look at this following. Wait, where are they all going? They're starting to go away. They're starting to go away. And then some Jews come up, and they're arguing over purification. Maybe it happened that way. Maybe they're getting over the arguments. Well, that's not what the guys over there with Jesus said. Wait, what guy's over with Jesus? Yeah, Jesus, he's over there. He's baptizing too. Wait, what? What? That's where all of our people are going. There's another guy. Oh, let's go tell John. Somehow, their perspective had changed, and it became about them. John never lost that perspective. John always had the right perspective, and that's what I want to look at today. We're going to look at four perspectives that we should have as, as servants of, of God. All uh, believers are his servants, right? We're called to serve him. That's why we're on earth. And sometimes I think we forget that, <laughs> but that's why we're here. But John, look at John's wonderful response. And, and, and this is the first point. Everything you have is God's. That's the first perspective you should have. <laughs> everything you have is God's. Key word is everything you have is God's. Look what he says. John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You receive nothing that God did not already own. Nothing at all. Every penny you have in the bank, your house, your car, your wife, your children, your husband, yeah, everything has been given to you by God. It all belongs to him. The hard thing is this world tells us quite a different story, <laughs> don't they? It tells us that really um, you, you earn it all. 
you're entitled to it all. You're entitled to this, you earn that, go get this, and you've accomplished this. It's about what we can do. But it isn't. God gives us everything. Everything. It all comes from him. James chapter 1, verse 17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Do you believe that? Do you look at everything and go, everything has come from him? Everything. And if it is from God, then we have to be prepared for the temporary because I don't own it. And that's where it really gets hard, doesn't it? We think we own it. And then when we lose it, we can become distraught. You guys know Job. Job is the, is, is the man we like to use in scripture as like the, the pinnacle of suffering, right? The man who just suffered everything, maybe next to Jesus. So we go like Job. And sometimes we might even dare to say, I'm just going, I'm, I'm suffering like Job. Um, where he lost everything. And that's okay. You say that, but. I would hope that you'd have Job's perspective because Job in chapter one, verse 21, going through what he did, said this naked. I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I came to this earth naked. I brought absolutely nothing into this world. And guess what? I'm going to leave the same way. That was, the, that was the, the result of Solomon's great experiment. If you read the book of Ecclesiastes, right? His big experiment is like, what's the purpose of life? And, you know, and what's the point of making money and wealth and riches? Because you just leave it to someone else. Someone else comes along and takes it. You don't take it with you. You come naked, you leave naked. But it's true. A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. And... John, in stating that, embraces his lesser role. You know, he doesn't stick up for himself. He doesn't say anything about himself. It's, listen, a man, a man only gets stuff if God's given it to him to begin with. He was only the forerunner. He's not the runner. He's only the voice. He's not the man behind the voice, right? He, he just, I'm just a voice. I'm just a voice in the wilderness. That, that's the first point. Everything you have is from God. Second perspective you should have is found in verse 28. You're here to glorify Christ. Everything you have is from him, and everything you have then should be used to glorify him. That's, that's just the bottom line. Verse 28, you yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. John saw Jesus' increasingly, you know, I guess his increasing popularity, not as a concern, right, but really as a, a fulfillment of his ministry. That's exactly what I was hoping to happen. Right? I've, I was the voice. I was pointing people to Christ. If they're going to Christ, amen. He's not concerned that his ministry is, is dwindling. He's not concerned um, that it's, you know, they got fewer followers. We just measure success in the wrong way, don't we? We just measure success by how many, how many people follow. How, we, could, we could look at that in our church, can't we? We can go, oh, you know, have, have we been successful in what we do? Because should, should we have more in number? Two things. One, Jesus said he'll build his church, right? And so that's not my focus. My focus is not numbers. I'm not going to, you know, throw all these campaigns to draw people in and, and cake sales and whatever. I'm not going to do all those crazy things because I, I don't have any control over building his church. Jesus said he'll build his church. And when he said his church, he means the universal church, the entire body. This is just one little tiny piece of it, honestly. 
And you know what? If, if we're just, if, it, it, you know, me as a pastor, my, my, my role is not to increase the, the numbers. Mine is to, is to increase the depth, right? That's, that's my job, my only job. That's all I focus on. I'm like, okay, now how can I get more numbers? I, I don't lose sleep over that. What I lose sleep over is, oh, are, are, are people faithful? Are they grown in Christ? Do they have roots that are deep down rooted in Christ? I think of Colossians when Paul talks about that, rooted in Christ. Or are they just being blown away by the things that come along in the world? I'm not concerned about numbers. We're here to glorify Christ. And I don't measure success about how many people follow the church or follow me or follow whatever. We can't measure by how much we've accumulated, how much knowledge we have. I, I think you measure it by how many people follow Christ through you. There's a good measurement, right? If I've been successful, I've been successful if I've led one person to Christ. If my life has, has, has somehow guided someone to the light, I've bear witness to the light. Just like John. You've, you've lived a successful Christian life. I think also with our possessions and the things we have, you don't measure it by how much we have, but maybe how much you've blessed others and Christ through what you've been given by him. Because none of it's yours. None of it's yours. You know, we're just, we're not, we're not big. <laughs> we're pretty small. And God doesn't need us. He um, doesn't need me. He can accomplish what he wants and how he wants without me. And Paul made that clear in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you want to turn there, I'll just read you a couple verses there. But, but, you know, Paul had a problem, the same problem with the Corinthian church. You know, they, they had their own issues, didn't they? And they got into a, uh, oh, I follow this person argument and I follow that person argument you know who who's the better uh, teacher who's the better theologian uh, who's the better pastor who's the better uh, or whatever in their church and john said i you know paul said i'm just going to put that to rest that's none of that matters in first corinthians chapter one he says this in verse 12 now i say this that each of you says i am of paul or i am of apollos or i am of cephas or i'm of christ is christ divided was paul crucified for you or were you baptized in the name of Paul? He asks all these rhetorical questions to say, is that what it's about? Is it about me? I, didn't cru- I wasn't crucified for you. And then chapter 3, verse 4, he goes on and says, For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? Who then is Paul? And who is Apollos? But ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then, neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. We're nothing. And Paul's talking about him. He's like, who's Paul? That's Paul writing that. Who am I? Who am I? I'm nobody. I'm nobody. So first, everything you have is from God. Second, you're here to glorify Christ. And that's with everything you've been given by him. Third, to illustrate his role, John uses a very familiar imagery here with the wedding. The third point is true joy is found in fulfilling your purpose. So many people, right, looking for purpose in life. What's it all about? How do I find, what, 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 you know? Your, 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 your purpose is to glorify Christ. And if you're not doing that, you're not fulfilling it, joy will be hard to find. Because you're trying to find it in the things of this world, which are so fleeting you might have joy for a day, for a week, for a month, a year. 
but it won't be strong, it won't be true, and it won't be lasting. In verse 29, he says this, he who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. The friend of the bridegroom, sort of like the best man of our day, you know, he sort of oversaw the details of the wedding, maybe was the master of ceremonies. He took care of all the details, but he also uh, many times was responsible for taking that bride to the bridegroom, right? And he was trying to fulfill his job. If I got that bride to the bridegroom so that that ceremony could take place and they could do the I do's, then I have done my, my job. And he stood back and just watched it happen. And that's the, the picture that he gives us there. You're not there to steal their thunder, right? The wedding is never about the best man, right? Hopefully. <laughs> not about the matron of honor. It's not about the parents. It's not even about the minister standing there. I mean, I always try to hide back there. I know they always make you stick in the middle. I'm like, ah, I, I got to say things I understand, but it's about these two. It's not about me. Right? These two are making this incredible commitment before God. These two are doing something that only happens in this institution. They become one flesh. That's incredible, and I get to see that, and we're there to rejoice over that. And John is using that imagery. He's like, I, I, I am just here to get the bride to the bridegroom, and I stand back and go, yes, that's excellent. I've done my job. I've done my job. And you know what brings him is joy. Turn to Philippians real quick, and Philippians is the book of joy, isn't it? It's the letter of, of joy. We refer to it as such, at least. In Philippians chapter 1, Beginning in verse 12, we find Paul in prison, <laughs> at least under house arrest. He's not a free man. He is jailed. And yet, look what he writes about. <laughs> verse 12, but I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me, meaning I've, I've gone to prison, okay, have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. So he's writing out, and I just want you guys to know, I know I've gone to, I know I'm under arrest, but they've actually, it, this, this, terrible situation has actually furthered the gospel verse 13 so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in christ they know why i'm here it's about jesus and most of the brethren in the lord having become confident by my chains are much more bold to speak the word without fear some indeed preach christ even from envy and strife and some also from goodwill the former preach christ from selfish ambition not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, he says. I'm in prison, right? And, and the gospel's going out, and yeah, you've heard right. There are some guys that are actually preaching uh, out there and making it harder. They're, they're actually preaching against uh, me, but if they're preaching Christ, I don't care. It's not about me. You see what he's saying? Oh, but they're stealing, they're stealing your thunder. They're stealing the people who are following. They're not following me. If they're following Christ, I rejoice, he says. I rejoice. I think a lot of times we, we lose out on so much joy that we should be experiencing as, as Christians, honestly, because we're still trying to find it in, in life. We're, we're trying to find it here. Oh, you know, if I just have this child, then joy will happen. Right? Well, if I just find the perfect husband or wife, then, then I will have joy. Listen, first of all, you're not going to find the perfect husband or wife. <laughs> I say, ask anyone married here. I'm going to tell you. Right? Knight in shining armor, not so. 
Not so. You won't find joy in the things of this world. You have temporary joy. Don't get me wrong. I, I, my kids and my wife bring me joy. But the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Anything could happen, right? And yes, of course, if something happened to my family, I would hurt. I would mourn. I, I would experience loss. But I wouldn't lose my joy. And that's the difference. We do not, we don't despair. We don't grief without hope as those who have no hope. We have hope. My joy is rooted in whether or not I am fulfilling the author of joy and him. I'm glorifying Christ. That's what I'm here to do. And if I do that, then I have real joy, real lasting joy. Fourth perspective that you should have comes in verse, verse 30. Let me get back to my passage there. There we go. And it's a very simple one. Three words. You aren't Jesus. Maybe more for the world relevant, you aren't God. Verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. John was the herald for the king. And once the king arrives, there's no point in the people hanging around the herald. Right? I've been heralding the king. What are you sticking around here for? Go to the king. (laughs) I just love what John says. No, he must increase. Jesus must increase. I've got to decrease. And what we all need in life, I think, here is a lot more decreasing. Our, Our society today feeds into, no, increase, increase. It's, it's iPhones and selfies, and it's you. It's all about you. Increase you. I'm not saying those things are bad. You can use those things. What I'm saying, though, is, particularly with our young people, overabundance of that begins to produce this thing in themselves that says, yeah, it is about me. I need to make sure I'm marketing me. But that's what you see. Lots of people, all of a sudden, marketing themselves, right? But we're not to do that. He must increase. I've got to decrease. It's not, it's not about me. And John says, I'm just going to take the back seat here. It's okay. So he is schooling his disciples, isn't he here? I mean, this is, this is quite a speech coming from uh, John to his men who are complaining that, oh, Jesus' his ministry is, is getting bigger than ours. He says, we, we don't get anything that God hasn't, you know, God's given us everything. It doesn't come from, from you. You didn't earn this. You're not entitled to it. He's given it to you, and you should be using it to glorify him and if you are you're going to have full joy and your problem is that you think you're bigger than you are you're not jesus we need some decreasing in this world don't we i have i have to decrease i know my heart can can increase we we all have that a heart that wants to inflate self we can't let that happen it can't be about us jesus must be supreme in everything in this next section here I think we see five reasons why Jesus needs to be absolute supreme in in everyone's life. Those are four perspectives that we should have. But if you want my reasons as to why we should follow Jesus and make him supreme, John gives them here. Now, there has been some dispute, some think, from verse 31 on, that John the author takes over here and not John the Baptist. Because John the Baptist has been quoted, right? That's his answer. It looks like one long answer. But you have to remember, in the Greek, there's no quotation marks. We don't have that there. So some people think because of the language that's in verses 31 on, and it's very similar to what John has already talked about, that it's, it's the author taking over. Uh, I, I don't see anything in here that indicates a different speaker, so there's nothing said, and now. So I, I tend to think it's probably still John 
the Baptist speaking here. This is what he says in verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. We did look at a little bit uh, in verse uh, chapter 3 about this last week, the same idea. But the first reason that Jesus must be supreme is he came from above, right? He came from heaven. You didn't. I didn't. We looked at that word, um, the word again in verses uh, 3 and 7 of chapter 3. Do you remember that? Born again. Literally is born from above. Um, and here in verse 31, it's translated as such. He who comes from above. It's that same word, anothen. He comes from above. Jesus came from uh, heaven. He's the only one that has done that. He's the only one that has come from heaven. To reiterate what we looked at last week, we looked at it in verse 13. No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the son of man who is in heaven. No one has gone to heaven to tell you what heaven is like. No one has done that. We pointed out people in scripture who were resurrected. Listen to them. You can't listen to them because they've died. Listen to Christ. But don't listen to anyone else who's, tell, who's, who's said, oh, I've gone to heaven. I see what it's like, and it's not worth it, right? Like, they haven't gone to heaven. Scripture says it. No one has ascended to heaven. Only Jesus has. He came from above. And because Jesus came from heaven, then he trumps our earthliness. Just made up that word, I think. You are earthly. Every human teacher is earthly. And we're limited by our earthliness, our earthly boundaries. But Jesus' words surpass those of, of, of any religious leader at all. He's from heaven. And because he's from above, he's the only one who can testify to the truth, right? He's the only one that can testify from the truth. So point one, well, Jesus came from above. Jesus came from above. You want a reason as to why you should worship Christ or put him supreme? He came from heaven. Not you. Not you. Verse 32. And what has what he has seen and heard, that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony second reason is this christ testified of the truth because he's been to heaven he knows absolute truth he's seen truth he can testify the truth makes sense right he's seen it so he's the only one i can listen to to get truth i can't listen to anybody else's testimony for truth the writer of hebrews tells us this in in hebrews 1 1 to 2 i have for you god who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his son whom he's appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. Why does God speak to us by his son? <laughs> well, his son came to earth from heaven. That's, that's why. He's, he's been there. He can, he can tell us all things that are true. And that's why they were so astounded. You'll see some of these in, in John chapter 7. They're so astounded as to how uh, Jesus spoke. Even those, those enemies of his, no one ever spoke like this man. Well, yeah, because no one ever has been to heaven. Jesus knew what he was talking about. He knew what he's talking about. He has seen and heard that he testifies. But then it says this, and no one receives his testimony. Now, it's not absolutely true that no one has received his testimony. It's a generalization, right? But mankind in general has not. We saw that in chapter 1. Jesus came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Sadly, people still reject the truth, even though Jesus is the only one that can give us truth. His own didn't receive him, and here we're told no one receives his, his testimony. He's despised and rejected by men. And that's why he's crucified, ultimately. Third, third thing comes to us in verse 33. Christ's testimony always agreed with God's, 
right? Would make sense, would follow. You have a religious leader who testifies of things that differ from what you hear of God from his word, hasn't been to heaven, right? Doesn't agree with God. If it doesn't agree with God, then he's a liar. But look at verse 33. He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. Certified that God is true. So here, here's the exception, right? Having stated the general rule that mankind in general doesn't receive his, his testimony, here's the exception. There are those who have received his testimony, and those who have received his tes- testimony have, have certified, literally means set his seal to their belief that God is true, right? So today, you believe in the testimony of Jesus, you have certified the fact that your belief in God is real, right? That this is real. And people say, well, I believe in God, but do they believe in Jesus? Because if you believe in the testimony of Jesus, you've sealed the truth that I believe in God. But people who don't believe in Jesus, that is not set, is it? They can't set their seal on that, that they believe in a God because their, their, their opinion is based on their opinion or what they think about God. We, make it, we can make up all kinds of things about God. Human teachers sometimes might have some divine truth in what they say. It might sound good. It might be close to the mark, but, but many times they don't. But Jesus always spoke in complete harmony with the Father. You won't find Jesus saying something that disagreed with what the Father said. And therefore, those who profess to believe God but reject Christ are are deceived. You can't believe in God and not believe in Christ. John 5, 23 says this, He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. It just doesn't, doesn't work that way. In Matthew chapter 17, verse 5, while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him, God said. This is my son. You need to listen to him. To reject Jesus is to, is to call God a liar. Verse 34, another fourth reason here, we should place Christ as supreme in our Life is that he experienced the power of the Holy Spirit. And you say, well, we experienced the power of the Holy Spirit. Yes, he did so without limit. We are limited to a degree because of our sinful human nature, right? I, I don't experience the power of the Holy Spirit in my life when I'm sinful, right? You talk about the walk by the flesh and walk by the spirit type of thing, right? right we, it's, they're contrary to one another, Paul says, and they war against one another so that you don't do what you want to do. It's not that God has not given me of his spirit or enough of his spirit, right? I just haven't given him enough of me. That's the difference. That's the difference. And we find that in verse 34. For he whom God has sent, Jesus, speaks the word of God. For God does not give the spirit by measure, by measure. You see the Old Testament prophets, you know, they were empowered and led by the spirit, right? But they were also for limited times. A lot of times you see that or limited purposes, but they were also limited by their sinful natures. No one has had uh, the fullest measure of the spirit except for Jesus. And the reason was he was from heaven and therefore had no sinful nature. And so he possessed the spirit's power fully and completely. So I would say, you know, you want a, a greater measure of the spirit in your life. You don't need to pray harder. You don't need to ask for the Lord to, to send more of his, his spirit. His spirit's been given uh, to you. You need to ask the Lord to help you um, let the spirit get a hold of more of you. It's we who hold back 
we do it. I, I, I want the Spirit's li- power in my life, but then I also want to hold on to this little thing. And I want, want to keep that back here where no one sees it. But the Holy Spirit sees it all. So we limit the Holy Spirit's power in our lives. We do it ourselves, but, but, but Christ was fully unlimited by the power of the Spirit. So even as a believer who loves Christ, who loves the Lord, I can't be like him. I'm limited by my sinful nature. And the fifth reason found in these last two verses is, is Christ has received all authority from the Father. He has authority over everything. I have authority over just a couple of things right, in my life. Uh, my family and the, the, the church in terms of, in terms of my, my leadership role in terms of what I've called to do from the Lord. I don't have true authority over anyone, but the, there is a role I have in terms of protection of the church. I'm called, I've given authority over that, um, and instruction of uh, the church. And there's certain, you know, uh, you can say that's an authority power, but I, I don't have, my, I have my, that's it, right? There's not much authority. We might have an authority position in addition to families in, in workplaces and things like that. So what? It's nothing. Jesus has been given all authority, all of it. And that's what we find in verses 35 and 36. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hands. You know why I'm loving Revelation? You guys have been loving Revelation? is because you see that happening. It's all been about Christ. If you have never studied Revelation, it's not a, it says the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. Those are the first few words. The apocalypse actually means unveiling. The book of Revelation is about let's see Jesus. It's not about gloom, doom, and destruction. That's not what apocalypse means. It's about this. Jesus gets it all, and we get to see it happen, and it's incredible. And we're finally coming to that place where he gets to inherit everything. He has full authority. We just live in a world where we don't see it all right now. You know why we don't see it all right now? Because God is patient. If you wanted Christ's full authority to to be represented on earth right now, a whole lot of people are going to be doomed today. But he tarries. God tarries because he's patient, not willing that all should perish, but he wants some to come to repentance. That's why he waits. That's why he waits. Listen, that's not just a, a foolhardy uh, defense. That's scripture. Scripture tells us that, right? Or where's Jesus? Why don't we see him coming? I'm like, well, he's waiting because of you, hard-hearted person, right? When you hear that, people like, you know, and you should be thankful because if he came today, you'd be in trouble. If he came before I was saved, I would be in big trouble. I'm grateful. I am so grateful that he that he tarried for me, for me. And I'm grateful that he continues to tarry because I have many I love whom have not bowed the knee yet to the one who is absolutely supreme. And this is a clear indicator of Jesus' deity. You don't have full authority given to you from the Father and just be a man. John humbly acknowledged Jesus' absolute authority and right to be in the spotlight. He is the one that gets to be in the spotlight, not me. I'm nobody. And what's fascinating about John the Baptist, shortly after this event uh, event here, he's imprisoned by Herod and then beheaded. He says, no, he must increase, I must decrease. And his decreasing led to his removal of his head. But this is what's amazing. Before he fades into the background, which he's completely willing to do, he issues one last invitation and one last warning. And I just want you, as we read these, just I want you to think about your own life. I want you to think about yourself. Would these be your last thoughts and words? Your last, you were exiting. Would these be the things on your heart and on your mind? Look what he says here, verse 36. 
he who believes in the Son has everlasting life. John's John's leaving his ministry. It's all about Jesus. So I'm going to issue one last invitation. If you believe in the Son, you have everlasting life. Wow. That backs up Jesus' message to Nicodemus in verse 18, doesn't it? He told him that he who believes in him is not condemned. You're not condemned. Condemnation does not come to him who believes in Christ. I'll just read you John chapter 5, verse 24. It's just a page over. You want to look at it. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death into life. Passed. It's happened. You've passed from death into life. He speaks of the second death, which we're going to be looking at in Revelation this week, because we actually haven't died. But you won't be condemned, and therefore you'll experience eternal life because you believe in the one who can give it. He issues one last invitation, but he also issues one last warning. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Just as eternal life is the present possession of believers in in Jesus, condemnation is is the present condition of unbelievers. And that's just the condition of, of the world. You remember Jesus came into the world not to condemn the world, but to save it. And the reason is because the world is already condemned. It's already rejected God. It doesn't need further condemning. I don't condemn the world. I think people point at Christians and say, oh, you just, you know, you just condemn. I, listen, I, I don't need to condemn the world. It's already been condemned. But I can, I can do this. I can, you know, point you to the one who can save you. The problem is, is people need to understand why it's condemned. It's because we're sinful. I just, you know, I, I think uh, we just think too highly of ourselves that, that I've got my own standard of perfection and goodness and there's nothing good in me. I know my own heart. And that's why Jesus could say, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Because he is the supreme one. And we have to look at him as such. And I think a lot of times our perspective is just skewed. John the Baptist, incredible man. Jesus said he was the, the greatest man who ever lived. So you think about the great people in history, You'd probably pick a few others. I imagine for some of you, Trump wouldn't be it. (laughs) Just from my conversations, I hear people. But there's probably some pretty great people you would say, oh, this person was a great person. Jesus said John the Baptist was the greatest man who ever lived, and this was his response. No, he must increase. I've got to decrease. It's not about me. It's not about me. It's about Christ. It's about Christ. So my question to you is... uh, is it about Christ for you? You know, even believers, it uh, can become about so many other things, can't it? Our lives just get so busy and we get so, so distracted. And before you know it, it's about 500 different things. You know, I just want to make it simple today for you folks. You know, I just want to tell you, God loves you. And he does provide a very simple solution. <laughs> just give him all the glory. Remember that you're, you're just here to serve him. And, you know, by the way, I, I walk through City Center several times a week because the office is down there, you know. I see a whole lot of people down there busy serving other masters. You, you know what I mean? It, it may be business. It may be things. maybe people on the street who obviously have been serving other masters. And I got to tell you, those masters don't, don't seem to be good masters. Just by my perspective, I look at how they look and I look how their lives are. And I say, I, I would imagine that 
if I were to ask one of them, they would say that their master was a pretty cruel master. But Jesus is not. It is not, it is not um, a problem for me to follow Christ. It's not a problem to submit my life to him. You know why? He's a good master. But also, he's worthy. I think a lot of times we're unwilling because we just think too much of ourselves. And we need to be decreasing servants. We have to decrease and let him increase. Let me pray. God, I'm pretty sure I just preached that to myself. It's so easy to want to increase in this life, to want to be successful, to want to be important, to want to make a difference in some way. But God, you, you just make it so clear. It isn't about us. It's about you. And I just pray, Lord, today that we would be challenged to just make more of you and less of us. Everything I have, everything you've blessed me with in my life is to just give you glory and to point people to you. Forgive us, Lord, for those areas in which we don't accomplish that, for not being faithful to make the most of the time you've given us, of the resources you've given us, to make too much of ourselves. Life should be full of joy, full of peace, because we are trusting in you and because we're living for you. God, I love your church, love your people, so thankful for the opportunity to serve them in this way. And I pray that we would just go forward today wanting to be closer to you, wanting to, to lift you higher, and to glorify you. Help us, Lord. Help us to do that. It's so hard sometimes. We just can so easily switch into our own desires and living for the flesh. Would you help us by the power of your spirit to live for you? God, I pray for people who perhaps don't know you, have not come to that place where they see you as all that important, Lord. Uh, none of us in this room are above being at that point. We all have been there at some point in our lives. We all were in need of a little bit of a wake-up call to say, it's, you know, it's not about me. I came into this world naked. I leave the same way. It's about you. Help us to be humble people. And for those who need to know you, would you reveal yourself to them, God? Because you love them. As we saw last week, you love the world. And the reason you love the world is because the love, the world was not so lovable, because you just chose to. Even while we were still sinning and rebelling against you, you chose to. You're a good God. And we praise you today in Jesus' name. Amen.